Good evening, my crime-crazy people, and welcome back to our second mini-sode. I am your host, Courtney, and I am also a producer on the podcast, Fail of Humanity. And this is my own little segment where we cover three categories. One, which is called Dead to Rights, where we cover inmates who are or have been on death row. The second is Fugitivist, where we warn you, our listeners, about those on the run from law enforcement. And the last is where we tell you about our crime charities that help victims of crimes and their families. So let's dive right on in. Today we'll be covering John Errol Ferguson. John was executed for the murder of 35-year-old Charles Caesar Stinson, 37-year-old Gilbert Williams, 26-year-old John Holmes, 35-year-old Henry Clayton, 24-year-old Michael Miller, and 33-year-old Livingston Stalker, on July 27, 1977, during a home robbery. 45-year-old Johnny Hall and 24-year-old Margaret Wooden were also shot during the home invasion, but they did survive their injuries. Posing as a Florida Power and Light employee, Ferguson was let into the home by Margaret Wooden to check the electrical outlets. After looking in several rooms, Ferguson drew a gun, then bound and blindfolded Wooden. Ferguson let two accomplices, Marvin Frankois and Buford White, into the home to continue searching for drugs and money. Two hours later, the owner of the home, Livingston Stalker, and five friends returned home and were bound, blindfolded, and searched by Ferguson, Frankois, and White. Excuse me if I'm butchering any of these names. The seven bound and blindfolded people were then moved from the living room to a bedroom. Later, Wooden's boyfriend, Michael Miller, entered the house and was also bound, blindfolded, and searched. Miller and Wooden were moved to another bedroom together, and the other six were moved to the living room. At some point in the evening, Marvin Francois' mask fell off and his face was revealed to the others. Wooden heard shots coming from the living room where Francois was shooting the men. Ferguson placed a pillow over Wooden's head and then shot her. Not fatally, but wounded. Wooden saw Miller being shot and heard Ferguson run from the room. When the police arrived, they found six dead bodies, all of which had, had their hands tied behind their back, and they had been shot in the back of the head. Execution style. Johnny Hall survived a shotgun blast to the head and testified regarding the execution of the other men in the living room. Oh my. Accomplice White was convicted on all counts and was sentenced to death, despite a jury's recommendation for life. He was executed in 1987. Accomplice Francois was convicted on all counts was also sentenced to death, and he was executed in 1985. Accomplice Adolphus Archie, who drove the car, so the getaway driver, used to drop them off, pled guilty to secondary murder, and was sentenced to 20 years of imprisonment. See, I don't get that. If he did not know, I don't get the 20 year sentence. If he did know, you deserved it. But... I could not find anything on that, so moving on. Brian Glenfield and Belinda Worley, both 17-year-old, were last seen around 9 p.m. on Sunday, 0108-78. The two were supposed to be meeting friends at an ice cream parlor, mm. but their bodies were discovered the next morning in a wooded area. Glenfield's body was behind the wheel of a car with gunshots wounds to his chest, arm, and head while Worley's body was found in a nearby dense growth where she had been raped and then shot in the head. Several pieces of Worley's jewelry were missing, and the cash was missing from Glenfield's wallet. Excuse me, Glenfeld's wallet. 
Three months later, Ferguson was arrested at his apartment pursuant to a warrant for unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. So he ran. At the time of the arrest, Ferguson was under indictment for the six murders that had occurred in 1977. And after a consent search of the apartment, a gun was recovered. And it was similar to the gun used to kill the two kids. And Ferguson admitted to shooting the couple. So in total, you have eight murders and two attempted murders in two years. Wow. Busy man. But they say idle hands of the devil and all. Moving on to our next little segment, Fugitivus. We have a man, Stephen Campbell. He has been wanted for almost 40 years. And he's wanted for attempted first-degree murder, possession and manufacturing of a destructive device, so a bomb. He's been spotted in the Virgin Isles, and he may be using an alias. The warrant for his arrest was issued April 25th of 1983 in Wyoming. For manufacturing and possessing a bomb. <laughs> like, okay. Um, he is a white male, 6'2". Last, when he was last seen, he was 155 pounds. Could be more, could be less. He has black hair, brown eyes. He was born July 28th of 1948. He was born in Stockton, California. He has no known scars, marks, or tattoos. He also goes by the aliases of Fred Campbell and Stephen Murphy. Mm-hmm. Mr. Campbell could not let go. It is said that relationships run their course and people move on, but he couldn't let go. He had a wife named Sarah. They had separated, but he never got over her. And when Sarah moved in with a new man, Campbell came up with a bizarre scheme to end their relationship. Cops say that he planted a bomb inside of a toolbox and placed it on the man's front porch in Green River, Wyoming. But instead of blowing up his rival, Sarah opened the box and was nearly killed by the explosion. Police arrested Campbell, but he fled after posting bail. They say that the cops say that he has a pilot's license and a degree in electrical engineering. What are your thoughts? Leave us a comment on our Instagram, Veil of Humanity Podcast, or on our Facebook, Veil of Humanity. We also have a YouTube you can always find us on Apple Podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star review, that'd be great. We're also on Spotify and iHeartRadio. And of course, we're going to be moving on to our very last segment where we cover these beautiful, beautiful foundations that help victims. Today, we will be covering the Casey Woody Foundation. I learned about the Casey Woody Foundation through crime junkie i'm a i am a crime junkie i love that podcast i also listen to anatomy of murder snapped women who kill oh i really like the um my favorite murder that one's good too or killer queens that one's also really nice i grew up um watching true crime my mother is a fanatic so we watched all the shows together snapped i survived um, 48 Hours is one of her top favorites and mine. I also love Cops. 
Live PD, or now it's called On Patrol. But shout out to all of you awesome people who keep me in true crime. So thank you. So Casey's story is a sad one. She was a 13-year-old little girl. She lived in a rural town in Arkansas. She was in the seventh grade. She was an honor student. Her mother had unfortunately passed in an automobile accident in 1997 when she was seven years old. And Casey lived with her father, Rick, a police officer, and her brother, Tim Woody, who was 19 years old. On December 3rd, 2002, Casey was home alone. Her father was at work and her brother was out with a friend at the college library. He re- her brother returned home to find Casey missing. Tim and his father knew that Casey would never leave the house without first contacting them, so they expected foul play from the beginning. Um, Her father immediately called all her friends in a massive investigation involving the Arkansas State Police, FBI, and every law enforcement agency in Faulkner County. Led to the facts that Casey was abducted by an internet predator. Casey had been talking to this predator for a long time. She talked to him on the phone. She IM'd him. Remember them days? On, uh, I think it was Facebook or MySpace. Man, them days. She had met two friends on there. And all her friends knew about this. And they were telling her to be cautious. Even her teachers told her to be cautious. Because you never actually know who you're talking to. They can claim to be anybody. When her father found out, she he told her to never talk to him again. He's like, you have no business speaking to a 17-year-old boy. Unfortunately for him and her, it was much worse than that. The predator, who was saying he was 17, was actually a 47-year-old man from the San Diego area. They did everything they could to find Casey. They eventually managed to track down the man and his alias through the MySpace page and the email. They tracked the email back to his real name and found him at a motel. Unfortunately, he was not at the motel, but they did find out that he had rented a storage unit. And after... And after less than 20 hours, they had a location. Casey was found in the van, located inside a main storage building. And she had been shot in the head. And her abductor had shot himself when law enforcement had arrived. Casey was abducted and murdered by an internet predator. Someone she thought was her friend. Someone she had spoken to about the death of her mother. And all her struggles in life. Internet predators are hiding behind your computer screen right now. Waiting for the next victim. Casey was a dream child. She was a great student and a model child. Casey loved music, poetry, and loved to ride on the back of her father's motorcycle. Casey was a friend to all. She loved to help. She would make friends out of anybody. Casey wrote a poem titled, I Am an Angel. The first line reads, I am an angel 
sent from above to spread the world with lots of love. If you would like to donate to the Casey Woody Foundation, you can find them at their website, caseywoody.homestead.com, or you can find them on their Facebook, Casey Woody Foundation. Please, please donate. It would help protect our children with this new age technology is everywhere. You see five-year-olds who have iPhones. I didn't have my first phone until I was 13, and it was a slide-up. So please, let's protect our children from the predators who don't use doors. They don't use windows. They come right through the screen, right through your computer, your cell phone, your tablet, everything you have. You can't keep them out. So we need to teach ourselves and our children to protect ourselves and see the signs. Just because you think you know somebody, you don't. Crime, it's the crime junkie rule. If you think you know somebody, you don't. I would like to end our little segment with a quote. Ask for help, not because you are weak, but because you want to remain strong. By Les Brown. Thank you for joining me. This is a Bronx Bay production, written and produced by Courtney Santos, music and editing by Courtney Santos. So Bronx, tell the people we'll see them again. Mm-hmm.